Blog Talk Radio. Peace to the God. You already know, man. Yo, Bohemian wizardry, you fraud, them thieves be killing me, the enemy is close, we both lies on our identity, I feel like he who stepped, architect like M. Hotep, son had the son himself, the guard deadly with the art, I fit dark, with a slit heart, you can feel it in your bone marrow before the shit starts, standing in the cold with a scroll that was written in gold, behold the old glimpse that was never untold, infinite like the eight, seven dwelling in your melon, no felon, though the unrighteous say that I'm rebellious, I'm primal, my rhyme suicidal, I worship no idols, my style of the gems going down in a spiral. You stuck in your root, my intelligence past my cool. The God is the truth. Every time I step in the booth, you stepped on the stoop, got scooped and swooped in my loop. Do the knowledge, whack them seeds, get slayed like blue. You wish the son of the saw, a gift from the gods. The roof flying through the sky with golden wings. Submerged into the light, knighted by the golden king with the scepter of justice. Melanin cultivating chain until we are Ethereans, finally becoming one with the righteous sun. Solar, souls are raw, magnificent glow with unconditional love. Scattered rays for days from the heavens above. So below, the souls just trapped in the lowest depths of hell. Incarnated into 76 trillion cells to break free. We must be refined, masculine and feminine properties combined. The devil is the author of confusion. 183,000 divisions. Religion, denomination sets close schisms and isms. Though isn't it written in the Bible that Jesus spoke in parables? The scriptures and gospels aren't just historical. Many passages weren't meant to be taken literal. Most of it is allegorical based on esoteric principles. Baptist versus Methodist, Pentecostal holiness versus Jehovah Witness, Mormons versus Seven Day Advances, skeptics, atheists, and agnostics, divine and cosmic tactics of the reptilians, lower fourth dimensional aliens. So beware of the draconian Satanists. Though they aim to imprison all true beings through ignorance. Though we crush the head of Leviathan. Battle my control. Brainwashing and indoctrination, using religious politics, education, economics, health and labor, entertainment and war, no sex and law. In this chessboard game called life, we've all been pawns. Puppets on strings controlled by demonic spawns. You can't run with the devil and walk with God. You can't run with the devil and walk with God. You can't run with the devil and walk with God. You can't run with the devil and walk with God. You can't run with the devil and walk with God. You can't run with and walk with God, you can't run with the devil and walk with God. This is uh, Brother Fahim Takamshad El Bay filling in for do- uh, Dr. Asur Alim El Bay for the night. I'll be your host for the night, and our topic tonight will be about the Moors and Hollywood. Dealing with Hollywood, dealing with certain messages and di- different films that uh, that portrays us uh some in the, in the good light, some in the poor the bad light. Or in the dark light as some people say. When you're dealing with dealing more in Hollywood you also have to deal with history. Because history has a lot to do with dealing with uh Moors 
mean, Hollywood is dealing with the history of our people. And as a nation of people and the people of the world, the, I just want to touch on something uh, right quick. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, dealing with some current events, there were some uh, Guatemalans and Hondurans and uh, El Salvadorans. They were picked up in the St. Louis, Missouri Republic. I think about maybe between 12 and 13, or 15 of them. And this uh, state trooper was making a statement. Uh, he was saying, they're telling the news uh, reporter that the reason why they're being detained because they didn't have any nationality papers. They didn't have any nationality papers to confirm who they are. That's something. They didn't have any nationality papers, so they had to be detained. You know, uh, that's one of the things. I'm just saying that as an example of a lot of things Aleem and myself and others has been saying for the last, I don't know how many, 30 or 40 years, uh, why you need a nationality and why we say that nationality is the order of the day. Okay. All right. Now dealing with history. As we deal with history, we deal like the history of cowboys and Indians, uh, the history of uh, dealing with the indigenous American people in general, and also the history of dealing with indigenous all over the world. all over the world, and uh, this is, uh, uh, we were uh, dealing with the people that, because uh, uh, a lot of things, you get a lot of misleading information about our people, and uh, how, you know, how they want to depict us, how they want to portray us in certain movies and things like that. I know that a lot of you have seen the movie uh, The Black Knight, with Martin Lawrence and uh, Robin Hood, Hood, the Prince of Thieves, with Morgan Freeman and uh, 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 what is the uh, European actor name? Uh, oh, I can't think of his name. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, the European actor uh, and this uh, other movies uh, doing with Moors. Uh, you can tell, deal with uh, the movie True Romance and uh, and other movies alike, you know. So I'm here to, uh, to touch on that, touch on certain books and everything, dealing with uh, with the with those subjects. One thing we must learn how to understand that they would never. Pens would never fund their money, fund a lot of their money into making move movies that makes us look good, even if it is the truth. Because a lot of them, a great deal, a lot of them have a, a, a very big problem with the truth and telling the truth, especially when it comes to our people. 
you know, um, yes, I like to read something here, and it's called Black Indians by William Lauren Katz. Black Indians by William Lauren Katz, and I'm and I and I have to say I must say this, but this is a must book to be in every. Uh, indigenous American library and every uh, person and every, everybody's library really so you can better to educate yourself and to have a better understanding and education about who's who and who we are as a people okay let me start right here it says here James P. Beckworth I'm going to read it as it says here, okay? Black trappers tried mightily to build bridges of understanding with Native Americans, sometimes cemented with bonds, bonds of marriage. James Beckworth also married Indian women, sometimes in dizzling rapid succession. But with his flaming temper and love of battle, he kept burning his bridges. Beckworth became a chieftain of both Crow and Blackfoot Indian nations. Hmm. So he enjoyed many supporters and admirers. Beckworth also emerges from the first trade trades early history as the greatest Indian fighter of his generation. This was an age when his competitors for his honor were Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, believe it or not. Jim Bridger and Kit Carson. All these were mass murderers, especially Kit Carson. If you want to know the truth about the European uh, fair hunter Kit Carson, those of you who have heard of him, that is. It is difficult to imagine that this same frontiersman, scout, and explorer has stated from the story of the Old West, but fade he did. In skill, accomplishment, and violence, he matched men whose deeds have become part of a glorious frontier heritage. But when Universal International and Hollywood produced Horse, Opera, Tomahawk, in 1951, it cast white actor Jack Oakey as Jim Beckworth. I'm going to read this over again. When Universal International and Hollywood produced the horse opera Tomahawk in 1951, it was white actor, or so-called white actor, European actor Jack Oakey as Jim Beckworth. Now, you know Jim Beckworth was a Moor, okay? Well, a.k.a. so-called black man. Generations of young people never learned that this tough pioneer, fair trapper, was a so-called black man with Native American ancestry. Bethworth was born around 1798 to a so-called black slave with Native American lineage and her white master. As a teenager, he was an apprentice, he was an apprentice to a St. Louis blacksmith. His Western adventure began with a punch. When the burly blacksmith came between Beckworth and his liberty at 19 to come 
and go as he pleased. Bethlehem loved him and left St. Louis for the wilderness. <coughs> Though hardly original, he had hit upon the solution to the problem he was used from here on. That's far as I'm going to go with this, though. But uh, anybody have seen the movie uh, dealing with Tomahawk? If you ever watched the movie Tomahawk, the 1951 movie. Uh, it was the, the, the European actor Jack Oakey uh, played as Jim Beckworth. Beckworth was an indigenous Aborigine American. That's who he was. See, this is some of the uh, this is some of the uh, uh, a lot of the misinformation that they put out here in Hollywood about our people, especially when it comes to the indigenous uh, American community dealing with us as, um, you know, they're dealing with uh, so-called Indians looking almost like Europeans, long, wavy hair, you know, uh, you don't see indigenous people looking like that. You don't see... I mean, they're not going to show you that they look exactly like you and I. I'm talking about the Asiatic man and woman. Instead, they're going to show you all the time in the history books, in the history books in your schools and libraries and other books, you know, in bookstores, you would, you would, you would find that they look almost like Asians, which what they really are. A lot of them are Manchurians and Mongolians. So, you know, uh, this is the thing that's been going on with Hollywood, uh, dealing with uh, uh, movies like Robin Hood, The Prince of Thieves, The Black Knight, and dealing with cowboy western movies, uh, dealing with certain figures, and that Hollywood has betrayed as some as European actors and some uh even some with so called quote unquote Native American actors that that were actually ourselves, that were actually with us, our people, our ancestors that they were depicting. For a while, if you were dealing with Hollywood, dealing with uh uh Hannibal Baca Hannibal Barkar was a Carthaginian, a Carthaginian Moor. Not until recent times when you see certain certain documentary films about Hannibal Barkar, they just now, here it is, 2018, they're just now really showing Hannibal Barkar as actually who he was, Carthaginian, who was a Moor. Back in the past, they usually show you or depict Hannibal Barkar as, uh, as a somewhat dark European, as they will say, a so-called dark white person. This is the uh, what is the nonsense has been going on dealing with our people, dealing with the Europeans uh, misinformation about us and history. 
And also, you would like to want to uh, read the book and get and get the book. And the, and the name of the book is Othello's Children in the New World, and a Moorish History and Identity in the African American Experience by Jose V. Pimienta Bay. I say again, by Jose V. Pimienta Bay wrote this book. If you don't have this in your library already, this is also an interesting book dealing with uh, Hollywood movies and stories, even the stage plays dealing with uh, certain uh, plays, especially with uh, uh, certain Shakespearean plays. One of the Shakespearean plays I'd like to touch on, and also dealing with Hollywood, is today. I'm going to read this today. Okay, so I'm going to read this to you. Today, many students of the Nile Valley civilization know that the ancient Camites wisely contended, know thyself. Know thyself, know thyself. I'm going to keep repeating this for three times. Yet this saying also appeared in the official sacred text Moorish Koran of the Moorish Science Temple of America back in the late 1920s. In fact, this little-known organization presented official literature and teachings which were ahead of their time in revealing much about the so-called Negro black identity. But unfortunately, the historical and cultural ignorance most often found within the so-called AKA black community prevented most people from taking an interest in what the organization had to offer. In the early 19-teens and 20s, the wearing of strange head coverings known as fezes and the members represent to more science will certainly have appeared quite an alien to a populist wane on American Christianity. But through the efforts of leaders such as Marcus Garvey and the men and women of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, the level of historical awareness and cultural consciousness among the black masses was raised. Consequently, many newly enlightened so-called Negroes were able to give greater consideration of the, to the teachings of the founder, Drew Ali, and thereby came into the Moorish Zion temples. However, the relatively recent work at the late Hugo Prosper's Leeming Bay on Ben Ishmael tribe also suggested that the early support for Ali's movement came from a Midwestern Indian community known as the Ishmaelites. And also the Ben Ishmael tribe is also an old tribe, an old Asiatic indigenous Moorish tribe that's been there thousands upon thousands of years. Because Hollywood has got into the minds of the people and and has socially engineered the minds of the people that uh, the Indians they usually see is the real Indians. So it says there in time several factors reduced the presence and appeal of the Moore Science Temple movement. This included the personal weakness of some Moorish science members, externally imposed political intrigues and usual materialistic seductions of our society. All such factors would take their toll in stifling 
the success. of the temple organization and its message. Sadly, almost immediately after Raleigh's passing, there was a fragmentation of the initial Moorish movement to several different factions. Each faction would present varying, varying interpretations regarding where priorities should be placed. Unfortunately, this fictionalization would ultimately add to the confusion concerning the purpose of the movement. And this would further diminish its popularity and strength. Nevertheless, the message regarding the Moorish identity of so-called African Americans has reached pockets of the rank and file over the past 88 years. But great clarity regarding the significance of the of the movement is direly needed, and that is the primary concern of this work. Now, we can get to the African person who knows African history and its impact upon human progress will certainly know that they are no less valuable than their European brethren. But sadly, there are millions of what you call Othello's progeny who reside in contemporary America. These tragic African figures suffer from a kind of amnesia, a condition which I have often conceptually characterized as Negroholism. It is a condition which stems from an African person's lack of historical information about their positive roles and upon all continents, not the least of which is the Americas. Americas meaning North, Central, and South America and the adjoining islands. Not surprisingly, such Othello-like personalities are too often prone to violent and irrational rage against the source of their pain and injustice. Those of you who remember the uh, the movie about Othello, and those who saw our latest movie about Othello called O, with actor uh, Mikey Piper and Julia Stiles. Okay, let me explain about it. If, if those of you didn't get the real understanding of that movie, I'm gonna explain to you and read to you what that movie was really all about and what was the message in that movie, okay? Because a lot of people didn't really get the true meaning of Othello. They really did not. Sadly, much of African Americans' most classic experiences have been self-deprecating a consequence of having endured the worst elements of Eurocentric hegemony. Historically, many European Americans questioned the very humanity of Africans in the interest of material gain and created an entire social-political structure designed to enforce and perpetuate this dehumanizing, uh, this dehumanization of African peoples. The so-called black community is clearly in need of greater self-knowledge and a more defensible self-love. 
it should be known from the start of the uh, the perspective offered here is Moorish America. Such a perspective is born of the fact that much of my own worldview has been influenced by the Moorish Science Temple movement, a movement born in the United States during the first decades of the 20th century. My association with the Moorish Sciences have helped to show me that in many profound ways, the African so-called African-American community is representative of the fictional Othello. Hypothetically speaking, most of us represent his dysfunctional children. Bear with this now, okay? As with Othello, much of the so-called black American experience has been a tragedy, and the tragedy of the so-called black or Negro experience in America is directly related to the lack of self-knowledge and self-love, which has predominantly dominated here for so long, hence the title of my work, Othello's Children in the New World. Okay. Hold on for a minute here. Just give me, bear with me here. Get these pages together. Okay. Okay. I often place in terms West and Westland within quotes because it reminds us that it is largely construct, it is largely a construct or a paradigm. Its primary elements include a geographic and historical focus upon Europe, an emphasis, an emphasis upon an individualism versus communalism, patriarchy, a Judeo-Christian religious focus, ancient cultural foundations traced primarily to Greece and Rome and capitalism as an economic system system. In truth, aspects of these elements which are labeled as Western or in fact Eastern in origin. Jesus of Nazareth, for example. It is it is taught by scholars such as Jane Carew that Othello was based upon a real person named Gonzaga. See the Golden Age of the Moor by Ivan Van Sertima. Other scholars, such as Karnak House, Saba Sakana, have pointed to the influence upon Shakespeare of a fictional short story by the Italian Geraldi Gentio. Providing historical insight on what Anglo-centrists refer to as the Elizabethan era, Undoubtedly, well-read and well-informed for his days, Shakespeare's work provides us with predominant British worldview of that era, revealing how many Brits saw the world. Shakespeare's work, therefore, outlines and portrays the predominant, men, the predominant mentality of his countrymen, and this is valuable for the historian. As an African-centered historian focused upon Moorish history, I am particularly interested in Shakespeare's Othello. I find it to be in the most historically illuminating of all his writings regarding African peoples. Yet it is not 
his only play to discuss African Moors, Aaron, Titus, Adronicus, and the Prince of Morocco in The Merchant of Venus are additional examples of Moors in Shakespearean plays. But Othello is only but Othello is the only play which has a Moor in the central character. Written sometime around 1600, Othello and the tragic story of a African man and his European Venetian or Venetian wife, Desdemona, identifies specifically as the Moor. Othello marries the beautiful young Italian woman while serving as a high military official of the Venetian city state. But the sexual and racial jealousy of Othello's villainous Venetian acquaintance, Lago, motivates Lago to conspire against him. Lago creates an elaborate scheme destined to convince the Moor that his wife, Desdemona, has been unfaithful. The ultimate result of Lago's diabolical intrigues and Othello's own internal, let me read this again, and Othello's own internal weaknesses is the murder of Desdemona at the hands of her Moorish husband. Are you following me so far about this movie and this Shakespearean play? Because the, the play has been uh, been portrayed by many uh, more actors, such as uh, Paul Robeson, uh, James Earl Jones. Uh, I'll just name a few. The last one I know was uh, Lawrence Fishburne, and the other one was called O by Mikey uh, Pfeiffer. Okay. Just trying to get you to understand this movie, okay? All right. Contained with Shakespeare's play are a number of important revelations which are relevant and helpful to the historian. First, the so-called fictional play posits that African, Africa's Moors serve the governments of early Christian Europe. European nations, this is, the, this is in truth, a historical fact. Second, the play infers that European populace were familiar with marriages and other unions between Europeans and Africans. This, too, is historically accurate. But perhaps the most important deduction is that the Elizabethan Brits and presumably many other European peoples of that era clearly understood that Moors were phenotypical typically Africoid, a so-called black people, as we shall see later. This is a fact which will become lost of future generations of Western Eurocentric lay persons and academics. Although we know that not all Brits or other Europeans would have approved of such intermarriage, Shakespeare revealed that may be perceived as liberal view, or as a liberal view. He showed that this by electing to ennoble the Moorish character of the fellow, but even though the play is defined as a tragedy, dignity and humanity is still very apparent in the tragic African figure. Renowned Shakespearean scholar David Bebington suggests that the that Othello even appears as a kind of a Christ-like figure. Bebington points out that Othello, as a Christian convert, makes his first appearance on stage in a scene where he is confronted by men who have come to arrest him. 
Othello responds by immediately telling his fellow followers to sheathe the swords which they had drawn in his defense. Beverton regards this as sufficiently reminiscent of Christ's arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane to be a fleeting comparison between Othello and the Christian God whose charity and forbearance he seeks to emulate. Othello's blackness may be used in part as the emblem of fallen man, but so we are all fallen. See, with the understanding I'm trying to get our listeners tonight to understand that Othello, the the, the whole Othello character was depicting us as a people. A lot of our people don't have uh, the knowledge of self. So thousands upon thousands upon thousands of us, our babies and children, are dying for the lack of knowledge. This is what's going on even today. As you see in a lot of in our communities uh, all over the world, in our Asiatic, uh, indigenous American communities all over the world, uh, we are killing up each other like like flies, like roaches, as some people say. Which make these, some of these police or so-called police officers, which we call policyholders, look like Boy Scouts in comparison. We a lot of them always take to the streets. Uh, talking about the so-called Black Lives Matter and everything like that, protesting to the police, but you you don't hear that much protest about us killing each other down like dogs, which far supersedes and outnumber the police murdering of our young men and women in comparison. Not that I'm saying it's okay to to murder any other people of other nation of any other nationality or ethnicity. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying why is this going? Why is this so prevalent amongst our own people? Why? I want you to answer that question for yourselves. Pound on pound on that question. I want you all to do the math. Okay. In spite of such essentially favorable analogies with the person of Jesus the Christ, the character of Othello is more complex. The character is in fact struggles with what many would consider as major personality flaws. For one thing, Shakespeare's Othello is imbued with temperament, which succumbs to violent jealousy and extreme possessiveness. Some may see this as a deliberate caricature uh, of African Moorish men employed by Shakespeare's for racist reasons. Others might interpret Othello's jealousy as typical for any powerful man of that era, placed in a similar situation. Another position is that this is simply Shakespeare's style, and one can point to the various pathologies displayed in King's Lear or Macbeth. Whatever 
The motivation, betrayal, self-doubt, and jealousy are prominent in driving play uh, driving the play Othello. Some critics point to parts of Othello's dialogue as actually revealing a contempt for his own ethnicity, meaning blood. Critics such as Jane Carew attribute Othello's self-contempt to his lack of self-love and true self-knowledge. For Othello himself states that the motivation for his personal shortcomings were born of the vices of my blood. The Act 1, Scene 3 of the play and the movie itself. His conversion and acceleration into Western European Senate, Christian world had evidently fostered some contempt for his African-Islamic lineage. Critics such as Arthur Kirsch have also pointed to Shakespeare's creation being played by self-hatred and altruism. Kirsch contends that Othello was an outsider unable to counter the dominant European culture, culture's customary contempt for him. David Bibbiton then asks, Othello's jealousy stems from a profound suspicion that others cannot love him because he does not deem himself lovable. I'm going to stop right here. How many of you uh, see this in a lot of our people, community, that you live in? How many do you see this? I see it a lot in the Asiatic communities. And I know that's going on all over the Asiatic communities, all over the Union States. I know it is. I'm going to read this over again. Delo's jealousy stems from a profound suspicion that others cannot love him because he does not himself lovable. That means he had to have a very, very, very low self-esteem of himself. And a person that has a very low uh, uh, self-esteem of themselves is easily, is easily to be deceived. Like, a, like, the, like the, the character Othello was in this play and in this movie. I don't know how many of us got that when they saw the movie. I don't know how many of us got that. How many of us picked that up? This shows you a lot of things they're trying to uh, tell us about ourselves in these movies that we need to pick up on. And they're actually telling us about ourselves, not only about our history, uh, uh, how much we contribute to world history, but also the things a lot about our inner selves and what we need to deal with and what we need to conquer. Because most of us, we keep searching and looking for things and answers outside of ourselves instead of within. Which is the real answer? You're searching for God, you've got to look within if you want to search for God, if you want to look for God. Because God is in each... It was, it was in, uh, God is inside of each and every one of us, believe it or not. Instead of looking for some spiritual or some spirit in the sky, 
I know there are a lot of people don't like what I'm saying. I know you don't. And I have nothing against uh, people who call themselves Christianity. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I remember to quote myself. Call themselves Christians. But there are a lot of more, most, most Moors are Christians. Most Moors are Christians. This is a lot of the misunderstanding of the Moorish movement. A lot of people think you have to be, have to change or convert to another religious uh, institution. That's not true. To another religion, that's not true. You are more, whether you're a Christian, Buddhist, Hebrew, Israelite, Baptist, Catholic, whatever you want to, uh, whatever you want to, uh, uh, whatever what your belief is, or so-called beliefs, because I don't deal with beliefs, I deal with facts, and then what I know. Okay, let me move along here. In short, Othello is essentially a character with low self-esteem. But as I just tell you, who tries too hard to win the love of others? The result is his own self-destruction as well as the destruction of others who are innocent. Let's stop right here again. See, this is what the, the character Othello's problem is. What did a lot of our people today, you try to love your enemies more than you love yourself. I'm going to say this again. A lot of us try to love our enemies more than we love ourselves. And this is the big number one downfall of us as a nation and as a nation of people all around the world. When you want to love someone, you have to love your, yourself first. Self has to come first. If you don't love yourself, then how can you bring love to anyone else? You can't because you don't have it. You don't have it to give. It's not there. The love you want to bring, bring to other people, you bankrupt with it. It's bankrupt. And you have a people with a bankrupt society of love. Or what I can say, bankrupt of self-love, to put it more in a better, you know, in a better word. All right. It is clear to me that the fictional Othello actually expresses an important point regarding the often destructive psychological effects of westernization, Eurocentric, and hegemony on the African people, especially those living within the U.S. Carew brilliantly summarized the significance of Shakespeare's Othello when he writes, 
Othello was an uprooted African man. He was reliving the, the Antius legend. The further he was removed from the smell of his earth and the dreams of his people, the weaker, more confused, and vulnerable he became. How many of you understood what I just read you? Read to you. How many of you understood what I said? I'm gonna read it over again. Okay, I'm gonna read it slowly. Othello was an uprooted African man. He was reliving the Antaeus legend. The further he was removed from the smell of his earth and the dreams of his people, the weaker, more confused, and vulnerable he became. He forgot who he was. He forgot where he came from. He forgot by being a moor, he was tied to the earth land, to the land of the earth. And by the way, I said, I said, oh, I say it again, moor does not mean black. That's in the that's in the Greek term. The Greek term is a late a Johnny come lately language. There were other languages, thousands upon thousands of years before the Greek language. Before even uh, there was a Greek language. As a matter of fact, we gave them their Greek language. Believe it or not. But the Greeks were saying that. What they were telling the people what Moors look like. But this is what the, how vulnerable he became. He forgot himself. He forgot who he was. And trying to take on upon an identity of something else that he wasn't. And trying to identify what other people other than his own. That's what the movie Othello was about. They're not going to come out. Hollywood's not going to come right out and tell you what it's about. You have to be enlightened enough, conscious enough to understand that. And I know there's a lot of us that are not conscious or enlightened enough to understand the movie like that. A lot of a lot of our people didn't pick up the, up on that about what that movie actually meant and what the message it was telling our people about ourselves. Okay. This invisible general of the battlefield is therefore brought down by a tawdry intriguer, Lago, the Shakespeare, endowed with an inner ear of the winds, change blowing across the Renaissance Europe, created through his Othello and an archetypical symbol of a noble African who will be tricked and brought low by a clever European trickster. Carew also draws an important analogy between Othello and Shakespeare's other fictional moor of the Merchant of Venus. Carew writes, The scenic like the Prince of Morocco would have said of him, Othello, 
he was too noble for his own good. Carew then continues, but apart from other considerations, Othello is also the symbol of an uprooted man in a new age of rootless human beings, wanderers and adventurers. In Venus, his African presence diffuses itself and becomes the subject of reminiscence to entertain and then and thrill Desdemona. He never once mentioned the African mother who mothered him. Let me read this again. He never once mentioned the African mother who mothered him. And ignoring his mother, he became a man without a sense of place, bereft of country and family and clan. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm stop right here also. And you hear you, you hear such uh, uh, such men make the the dumb stupid statement. Uh, so-called black women just don't do it for me, man. I got to have a so-called white woman. I got to have other women. You know, uh, I love, uh, I mean, uh, but what does that say about your mother? From the womb, who you came from, came from the more Asiatic woman. Not from a woman of a European woman, but from a more of a Asia from a more Asiatic woman. You hear other our brothers say like, uh, oh, there's nothing like a light skinned so called black woman. There's nothing like a uh light brown skinned yellow woman. Okay, suppose your mother was dark, a dark-skinned woman. Well, okay. But it was her womb where you came from. What does that say about your mother? This is why we are being trampled on by other nations of the earth nationalities and ethnicities of the earth. All these other nationalities and ethnicities of the earth know this about our people. They know this about our people. That's why most of the time when you see there, they have no respect for you. Because they know you don't honor your ancient foremothers. You do not honor them. But guess what? They honor theirs. If they know you don't have or you have a lot of dishonor for your own ancient foremothers, then you have a lot of dishonor for theirs. And that they will not and cannot have. Therefore, they don't want you around them corrupting their society. Okay, let me move on here. <clears throat> His final passionate outburst then is more than an important rage or an impotent rage 
against himself. He had tried to replace the loss of psychic roots and a psychic identity with his love for an ideal, and he failed. Unlike this character, Othello, Shakespeare chose to make the character of the Prince of Morocco evidently more comfortable with his Moorish self. In fact, the prince even comes across a somewhat arrogant field with his own sense of greatness. But unlike Othello, the Moroccan prince resided upon his own Moroccan soil and governed his own people. That's what the difference between the Moroccan prince and the movie Othello. I haven't seen the Moroccan prince or I haven't seen the play. The, the movie was never made, but I'm just saying the story has a more positive uh, uh, background than the Othello character. It says here, <clears throat> literary critics like Carew and Bebbington assert that it was not only simple, the individual actions of the scheming Lago which failed Othello, but Othello owns self-contempt. I would agree, but we should not be too surprised by Othello's self-loathing. After all, his character is that of a foreign man enveloped by a society whose predominant worldview did not have his best interest at heart. In fact, most, most of what he represented as a Moor was an anti, well, antithetical to a predominating Europe-centric interest of the time. Quintly, for Othello to fully fit in, he needed to remain ignorant of our consciously reject in any deep structural knowledge of his own culture and his positive value. Here we see the mind of Shakespeare depicting one likely representation of what a Moorish dignitary in such a position might have indeed thought and endured under such times and conditions. It is my assertion that this predominant theme of an uh, acculturated African wrestling with issues of self-hatred and alienation is also found in much of the so-called, well, of the Africans' experience in the Western world and generally and in the U.S., in particular, reason why I see the African experience here, or uh, African Americans, so-called African Americans, because we are not Africans, we are Americans. Period. I'm gonna get that over to you right now. You can disagree if you want to, you know, because you don't hardly see or hear any of the people from any of the African countries calling themselves Africans. They usually identify themselves as Senegalese, Sudanese, Ugandans, Nigerians, and so forth and so forth. Okay. But that's for another topic. I'm leave that alone for right now. Here we see the mind of Shakespeare depicting one likely representation of what a Moorish dignitary in such a position may have indeed thought 
and endured under such times and conditions. It is my assertion that this predominant theme of an acculturated African wrestling with issues of self-hatred and alienation is also found in much of the African experience in Western and world in general, and the U.S. in particular. Sadly, much of the African American's most experience has been self-deprecating, a consequence of having endured the worst elements of Eurocentric hegemony. Historically, many European Americans questioned the very humanity of Africans in the interest of material gain and created an anti-social political structure designed to enforce and perpetuate the dehumanization of African peoples. The so-called black community is clearly in need of greater self-knowledge and a more defensible self-love. It should be known from the start of the perspective offered here is Moorish America. Such a perspective is born of the fact that much of my own worldview has been influenced by the Moorish Science Temple movement, a movement born in the United States during the late decades, I mean the first decades of the 20th century. My association with the Moorish Science has helped to show me that in many profound ways the African-American, so-called African-American community is representative of the fictional Othello. Hypothetically speaking, most of us represent his dysfunctional children. As with Othello, much of the so-called black and American experience has been a tragedy, and the, the tragedy of the so-called black or Negro experience in America is directly related to the lack of self-knowledge and self-love, which has predominated here for so long, hence the title of my work, Othello's Children in the New World. That's what he's getting at. That's why he named the book Othello's Children in the New World. But the world is not new. The world is very, 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 very ancient. And we are the aborigine people of the so-called New World that everybody keeps saying. The reason why I use the word aborigine instead of aboriginal is because aboriginal came from the word aborigine. Aborigine means, from the very beginning, original people. That's us. From the very beginning, original people of the world. And that's who we are. We are Aborigine Americans. Let me move along here. In addition to notion that this is that that this hemisphere is new to African so-called African people as part of a greatly tragedy. This notion is the continent. A new a new less is born of a European reference point, which begins with Columbus. The fallacious notion of America's newness further con- contributes to the tragic to the tragic misunderstanding and ignorance held by many so-called African-Americans. But if one dares or cares to look the evidence of America's ancient transcontinental relations with both Africa and Asia is great, and it demands that we reassess the dominant view that the uh, the African Moors status here is post-Columbian. For most of U.S. history, anyone who contend that the African presence in the Americas was pre-Columbian, was largely labeled by the mainstream Western 
Academy as crazy or exceedingly radical. And that is very true. That is very true today. That's why today many students of non-violent civilization know that the ancient Kemites were contended. No thyself, as I said earlier in the lecture. It says here in the U.S., so-called black ignorance about historical past was clearly a prescription mandated by an enslavement system, shadow slavery, unbridled capitalist values, and Europe's cultural and political hegemony have all worked to to devalue, devalue African peoples. The West intellectual tradition has largely sought to present Africans as historically insignificant and exceedingly inferior to European, particular, Europeans, particularly Africans, more dark complexion. This has ensured the prevailing denigration of the African phenotype and the corruption and of avoidance emerged in the Americas invariably led to the African person's self-hatred and thereby justified the worship or the wardship of so-called blacks on the people's predominant European ancestry. As with the fictional Othello, the so-called African-Americans have customarily judged themselves by the standards of the so-called white or European mainstream culture. This has really been historically been happening to our people for decades. How many of you remember know about the uh, the movie Robin Hood, The Prince of Thieves, or saw the movie? It was telling you a lot of things in that movie. A lot of things were dropping. A lot of science in that movie. Remember when Morgan Freeman, when he when they was up on the hill, and these men was chasing this young boy. And Morgan Freeman had this telescope. Then Kevin Costner wanted to see it. He handed it to Kevin Costner, the European actor in the movie, that I couldn't think about his name earlier. Now I just remembered. Okay, Kevin Costner grabbed the telescope and he tried to look, and he got real scared because the men seemed very, very close to him, that he wanted us to strike out with him with his sword. That's how ignorant he was of the technology that this Moore had. Then Morgan Freeman grabbed and snatched the telescope away from uh, Kevin Costner. And he said to him, to him, how can your kind could ever conquer the world? He showed them different, better arts how to fight. And also in the movie uh, The Black Knight with, Morris, uh, with Martin Lawrence. He was showing them fighting techniques, how to build to combat their oppressors. If you look at the Black Knight, although uh, Martin Lawrence showed a lot of buffoonery in the movie, he showed a lot of buffoonery, as Martin Lawrence always do. But that's what Martin Lawrence do. And that's what he gets paid for. And he'll tell you that that's what he gets paid for. He made a statement one time. Someone asked him, said, Mr. Lawrence, why do you do a lot of these things? Why do you why do you act like that so much in your movies? And he said, well, you should see my paycheck. 
that was his answer. But anyway, he showed them how certain skills, combative skills, how to fight their oppressors. The same thing and Robin Hood, the Prince of Thieves. They were both dropping messages to our people. They were dropping messages to you of the things and the gifts that we brought to them because they were such a backwards people that we brought civilization to them. You, in the scene, the Robin Hood, the Prince of Thieves, when they were sneaking back into the castle to rescue the princess, they had one man who had to spread cow manure all over him. Anybody want, anybody, uh, anybody want to guess why he had to do that? Why did he have to spread cow manure all over him to make himself smell real, real, real bad like that? Because they didn't take baths in those days. Take baths in those days. Therefore, he had to spread cow manure to make him uh, smell triple worse than what he really was. That was the message. Those who do not remember that, that scene, scene, I advise you to look at that movie again and watch that scene and check that scene out. The scene where the woman was getting ready to have a baby, getting ready to give birth to a newborn baby. A lot of them Europeans didn't actually know what to really, what to do. Till Morgan Freeman showed them so you've seen horses or animals give birth, don't you? He said he had to show them how to properly to give birth to this newborn child. This was the messages that they show you in these movies that we brought civilization to them. If you read the book, the Golden Age of the Moor by Ivan Van Sertima, or even uh, the uh, History of the Moorish Empire in Europe by Edwin Meekin, uh, 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 volume one, two, three, it shows you how they, how we, our people bought, how we brought a lot of culture, a lot of a better living, mathematics, algebra. How to cook, music, dance. This 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 river dance that the Europeans always talk about. That's a Moorish dance, or sometimes called Moorish, M O R R I S, Moorish dance that we bought to them. And you see the commercials on television. They they say this dance dance. Took Europe by storm. Took Europe by storm. Where did it come from? It came from us, the Moors. We brought that to Europe. The fruitcake is an Egyptian delicacy that we brought to Europe. 
It's a Moorish hecoptic creation, delicacy, that we introduced to Europe. Breakfast, how to break the fast, how to bathe. what the messages that they were bringing in those movies, the Black Knight and the Robin Hood, the Prince of Thieves. One Martin Lawrence was sitting at the dinner table and you saw a lot of them grabbing a, uh, a bowl of peas, eating a bowl of peas with their hands. They didn't use knives or forks. That was the message that they were, that they, uh, that they were dropping to the audience of European history. That's relating to the Moors. You said, if you want me at the dinner table, uh, if you want me uh, for dinner, take the dog away from the dinner table. All this, how filthy they were. All this is relating to that. Okay, let me move along here. Okay. The African person who knows Africa's history and its impact upon human progress would certainly know that they are no less viable than their European brethren. But sadly, there are millions of Othello's progeny who reside in contemporary America. I, I, I read this before, but I'm going to read this over again. Okay, so bear with me. These tragic African figures suffer from a kind of amnesia, a condition which I have conceptually characterized as Negro holism. It is a condition which stems from the African person's lack of historical information about their positive roles and upon all continents, not the least of which is the Americas. Not surprisingly, such Othello-like personalities are too often prone to violent and irrational rage against the source of their pain and injustice. In the history of this country alone, one can see countless manifestations of not only Othello, but Shakespeare's Lago. Brabantio, Desdemona, Cassio, and Venetian senators. Besides, Othello, the children of Lago, also inundate the historical record. The, the children of Lago t- talking about uh, the Europeans, okay? Or Europeans' sons and daughters here in America that call themselves Americans, okay? Uh, I want to say that falsely calls themselves Americans, I'll put it that way. Moving along here. Lago's progeny represents those European women who have sought to undermine African people by distorting 
and are having historical truth in the interest of, of ego and political power, existing efforts to skip over Moorish culture influences upon European institutions, deny the Africanity of illustrious Moors, and deny the Moorish American presence in the pre-Columbian Americas as are profound examples of Lago-like efforts to create confusion in the African-American mind, or the so-called African-American mind, I call it. Such deliberate misrepresentations of the Moorish identity have a course affected not only histories, but even now. It says here, now, I'm going to stop right here, the Lago's, the Shakespearean play is all about how, how the European has socially engineered our people to think so much less of ourselves. That's what the movie was about. Hollywood is something else. Hollywood movies are something else if you know how to decipher them. If you know how to decipher these movies, if you have knowledge enough and you are conscious enough, conscious enough and enlightened enough to decipher these movies, you will very well enjoy them. But a lot of people, most it's as tragic and sadly to say that most of our people would say, "Oh, that was a good movie." Yeah, but what 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 did you get out of it? Well, the movie was good. He did this and she did that. They did this and they did that. Yeah, but what was the symbolism of the movie? What was the allegory of the movie? What? What did you say? Allegory, what's that? Symbolism, what do you mean by symbolism? Oh, I don't know. All I know, it was a good movie. And sadly, and, and you know, sadly to say, this is what the most of our people. I know there's a lot of us that are conscious, that are enlightened, like myself. Some are more conscious and enlightened than I am. That's probably listening to this uh, uh, show tonight. That can tell me something more about those movies than I can tell you tonight. So I'm not saying this to uh, insult anyone or, you know, step on anyone's toes. But I'm just saying this, you know, for our people so they can understand these, a lot of these movies about us. The Black Panther movie. The movie Get Out. How many of you saw the movie Get Out? It was trying to tell you about what's going on today and what has been going on also for decades. This brother uh, having a uh, Albion or Euro girlfriend, and she took her and she took him to his family. Took him to to her family. Put it that way. I'm sorry. Took her to her family. All European family. Among the course of the movie, he saw some of his own. Asiatic people there acting very, very, very strangely. But as you go into the movie, you will find out why. 
you found out why this European girl lured him, this brother, in to meeting her family and what plans they had installed for him. As they were cutting off, cutting the skulls on the top of the people's heads, of our people's heads, and replacing them with our brain. They want our DNA. They know their time is limited on this planet. They know. They're just trying to do everything they can. Everything, anything they can. I mean, anything to prolong their stay here. A lot of our people, when they die, they take a lot of our melanin from our people. Because the earth is getting hotter and hotter and hotter each decade. If anybody saw the movie, remember the part when he asked them, well, why black people? Why, 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 why us? Why do you want to do this to us? They never really answered the question. But those who are enlightened, those who are um, uh, conscious enough, know why. This, the, the, that, movie, that movie was dropping a lot, a whole lot. And those of you who haven't seen the movie Get Out, I suggest you to see the movie. It's on cable now. It's a must-watch movie. It's a much-watched movie for, uh, for those of us in every indigenous Asiatic community, community all over uh, all over the United States of America and all over the world, I should say. What the Black Panther movie? Actually, they were talking about us here in the Americas. Our Black Panthers are indigenous to the Americas, not Africa. Those who you that didn't know that. I advise you to check these movies out. I'm moving along here now. Okay. In 1994, Lawrence Fishburne starred in Kenneth Ragnett's film adaptation of Othello. The film did not receive much critical attention nor enjoy wide distribution, perhaps. The Shakespearean tragedy was too culturally rich for the chases of American uh, American Americans largely weighing on climatic car chases, explosions, and 
sex scenes. Perhaps the setting was too foreign and outdated. Whatever whatever the reason, virtually few Americans saw the film in theaters, but if the majority of Americans have gone to see it, I am certain that many would have been surprised or confused to see a so-called black actor as the Moor. Because, and the reason why, you know, he said this in his book, because uh, most of us don't see ourselves as Moors. Most of us don't even know what the term Moor means. Even today in the year 2018, on this day of year, uh, in the year uh, A.D., in the year of domination, 2018, you ask a, 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 a Asiatic sister or brother, uh, uh, you tell them they're more, hey, what's that? What's a more? I never heard of that before. This is how sleep and dumbed down, of, of a dumbed down level, level they have our people at. This is where most of our people at. You see it in the movie uh, True Romance. I don't know how many people saw the movie. Uh, if, they did, if they did see the movie, uh, uh, how much do they remember the movie? It's with the actor, uh, late actor Dennis Hopper. And he was telling these uh, Sicilians, he was telling them that, uh, you know, uh, I like to read a lot. I like to read books. I like to read a lot. I read a lot of books. And I read a lot of history. And he said, I find that stuff, that's not what he said, but I find that stuff fascinating, really fascinating stuff. And what I'm telling you what I found out. I found out that the Italian people were spawned or were spawned by niggers. This is what he said to the Sicilian Godfather. He said, your great, 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 great grandmother had sex with a nigger, and they had a half-nigger kid. And it's so much of their blood is in your veins, and it changed the Italian history forever. And that's true. That's very true. Because there's so much of our blood in the Italian people. How many people know uh, that a lot, of, a lot of the Italian people ha- have the sickness, the sickle cell sickness in Italy? And probably some here too, Italian people here too. How many of our people know that? A lot of them have the sickle cell or the sickle cell or the sickle cell trait in their veins that comes from them mixing with our ancestors in Europe, with our Moorish ancestors in Europe. Okay. All right, let me move along here. 
until quite recently, the U.S. theatrical legacy has been typified by Caucasian portrayals of the lead role, a custom which has largely defeated the whole thematic purpose of Shakespeare's play. But among the exceptions found in America, theatrical history is James Hewlett. Hewlett was a so-called African-American who played the role of Othello in 1821 for the African Company of New York. The other exception was uh, Ira Aldrich, the so-called African-American actor who achieved international acclaim when 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 he performed in England as the as the COVID Garden in I mean at the COVID Garden in April 10, 1833, as a so-called African-American man, Aldrich could identify quite closely with the fictitious Othello, since his own life, since his own wife was European. But by the time the illustrious Renaissance man Paul Robeson opened as Othello, some 100 years later, most of the U.S. publicly rejected the historical the historical truth of the Moors' Africanity. Robeson's production was bombarded with criticism because Robeson was so-called Negro or Negro, which is a social false artificial construct, as we all know. Okay? Evidently unclear about the Africanity of the historic Moors, many so-called whites probably argued that Robeson's Othello was theatrical heresy. Such European-Americans or so-called white critics perceived that the historical Moors were not Negroes, and therefore a Negro actor could not play the noble tragic, tragic figure. Although it must be said from a Moorish American perspective, perspective that there is a great distinction between a Moor and a Negro. Such a distinction is largely semantic. It cannot and must not be interpreted as a denial of phenotypic physical phenomenity, but to a Moorish American, such semantics cannot be taken lightly. To better appreciate what I am saying, one must understand that properly speaking the terms Negro, colored, and black are found throughout Western history as pejorative references to, subject, to subjugated African people whose nationalities were deliberately as well as unknowingly denied. Consequently, if a person chose to view this form of a Moorish science perspective, they would have to concede that America had no Negroes, which America doesn't. America never had Negroes. America never had color people. America never had people of color. There are no such people. Speak to me a Negro language. Speak to me a black language. Speak to me a language of people of color. There are no such languages. Therefore, there are no such people exist within any part of the human family. Period.
only subjugated, oppressed, and amnesiatic Moors. But I mean, amnesiatic Moors mean the Moors who forgot themselves, who forgot who they who they are. Okay, but the Western world and European America has essentially been very successful in its use and imposition of what psychologist Isa Hillard has defined as name-calling and creating illusion. The European world has typically done both in the interest of skillfully maintaining the illusion of Europe's phenotypic and cultural superiority. While it is true that the U.S. has always possessed people of every nationality whose characters have displayed kindness and humane integrity, it is also true that the country's leadership in business, education, and politics has been deemed the consciousness of the masses in the interest of material wealth and psychological advantage. School curriculums, as well as state and federal laws, have customarily served the selfish interests of an overly materialistic European-American male business elite. Robber barons, sweatshops, anti-African imagery on consumer goods, Jim Crow laws, and economically motivated lynchings are just a few historic examples of the actions taken by a greedy oligarchy. Even the deliberate absence of the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence in the textbooks of segregated so-called black students stands as another of many historical examples of how U.S. political leaders sought to warp American minds of every hue. Such acts would enforce the creation of the maintenance of pigmentocracy rather than the true democratic republic. The chief beneficiaries of such diabolical acts would undoubtedly be men of predominant European descent. Because this country's long history of chattel slavery and the politics of pigment and that resulted racism is especially hard on persons of predominantly African ancestry, even though the U.S. has historically established its role as a leader in science and higher education. Some politics of pigment have continued to override scientific revelations, historical truths, and common sense. Consequently, American acad- academic possesses a very large canon of pseudo-scientific arguments claiming the inherited genetic inferiority of so-called blacks, Negroes, and colors. The voluminous work of anti-black thought edited by John D. Smith is one of the excellent sources which reveals the considerable effort taken to try to prove the inferiority of specified African peoples, particularly those who have been customarily labeled as black or Negroes. In contrast, historical investigation shows that the the oligarchy of of Anglophone European-American males chose the term white to indicate their political and social privileges. I'm going to say this again. In contrast, historical investigation shows that the oligarchy of Anglophone European-American males chose the term white to indicate their political and social privileges privileges, because see, actually the term uh, black, if you go back into the etymology meaning of it in high German, it actually means pale, bleach, or white. That's what it actually means. 
black actually doesn't mean or rigidly never meant a dark complexion or a dark color. You can look it up in any etymologic dictionary, any dictionary of etymology. Just don't take my word for it. Do your own homework. Do your own research. I don't want you to listen or to take what I'm saying to you. I want you to research yourself. All right, because white is a status, like black is a status. Those are statuses. They are not identities. They are not identities. Determines your place, or place in degree or level. You are in society, and how you will be treated in society. That's your political position in society and social business in society. Of the level you are in society, that is a status. White means God, ruler of the land. That's what white means. Black means death. This is not some knowledge that comes from the so-called white man. This is our knowledge. This is our knowledge. It ain't got nothing to do with the European. It's got something to do with truth. We got a lot of these people talking about, oh, that's that, so that's that white man's interpretation. No, it is not. That is the law. That is the law. Period. We gave them the structures of laws. We gave them that. That knowledge comes from our ancestors, not from them. But now they control it now. Says here, that just got through telling you, white was also a term which denoted godliness and the right of divine authority. So in spite of multinational origins of these United States, such men would seek to ensure the American society and institutions reinforced a popular myth of inherent supremacy and among persons of predominant European origin. Unfortunately, the Christian tradition has played a fairly large role in preserving such insidious interests and objectives. The United States is often portrayed historically as a Christian nation, but sadly at the inception of the great experiment called the United States, its Christian populace clearly rejected the creation of a true Christ-like land of brotherhood. This rejection occurred when its earliest leaders, claimants of Christ and human equality, allowed for the existence of chattel slavery in the interest of financial gain and unbridled greed. This is the, this is the like I said, this is the message of a lot of our people beginning in these movies. 
That's why sometimes I call it Hollywood, Holly weird. But it's not so weird after all once you get to really understand them. And once you get to understand the esoteric message that they are dropping on our people. Like I told you earlier about the Western Cowboys. How this this man Beckworth, the story of this man, was played by a European actor. called Jackie Oakey. Who knows how many other characters that are uh, that are Asiatic women uh, played or the, or, uh, the roles of the Asiatic sisters and brothers uh, playing and building up this uh, building not only of this country but of this world. But this plan I have uh, the gift they had given to the world as a whole that's been played by European actors or betrayed by European actors. Who knows? There's a lot to think about when you go to see these movies in you know especially the movies about us. This is what a lot of you need to, uh, a lot of us, if you're not doing it, you need to do a lot of studying, buy a lot of books. But also, you want to learn more about our history of our people, you want to buy the book, The First World Order. The First World Order by uh, Dr. Asura Alain Nutapak El Bay. You want to buy that book. How many people know, a lot of our people know that a lot of our they were uh, in Hollywood. They were uh, want to make movies about slavery, about how uh, we were enslaved, and how they want you to think or believe that your 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 ancestry go back to slavery, and it does not. People know that our ancestors enslaved European people first. But they will never tell you in the movies. They will never show these in your Hollywood movies. They will never teach this around in your grade schools or high schools. They'll never be a part of any curriculum in any school in the Union States of America. Never. They will never fund money. Uh, you take them uh, about them having us dominant and command over them. And you take the movie uh, about, they were going to make a movie about the Haitian Revolt in 1968. Out of those of you who remember around that time, or you were around during that time, or you were around during, during that time to understand what was going on. 
at the time. Uh, they were going to make a movie about the Haitian Revolt. Most people didn't know that. Most people don't know that today. Even to this to this day, they're going to make a movie. But what went wrong was they were going to have the actor Anthony Quinn to portray the uh, the Haitian leader as Christophe Saint John. Oh no, Henry Henry Christophe. That's his name was. Excuse me, Henry Christophe was the Haitian leader that was the, led the Haitian revolt against the other European powers. How they played other European powers against each other. But you think they're going to make a movie about that? You think they're going to fund their movie about that? Uh, not too long ago, Danny Grover wanted to, uh, to reopen the the story of the um, the plan for making the movie about the Haitian Revolt. They wouldn't fund him. They didn't want to fund that movie. They're not going to never make a movie about us being organized or having good sense or put us in a very, very, very beautiful positive light like that. They make a movie about the Russian Revolution, French Revolution. They make movies about the American so-called, I'll put it that way, quote-unquote, American Revolution, but never about the Haitian Revolution or revolt. People know that in Sudan, that the Sudanese Moors had defeated the British Army four times. They whooped the British Army four times. Probably, I believe between four or six times. They beat them. They beat their keisters. They beat them down between four and six times the Sudanese Moors. And, and, and by the way, in Sudan, they call themselves Moors. They refer to themselves as Moors in Sudan. Okay, in case he was wondering. You think they're going to make a movie about that? No, 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 no. Not that. They ain't going to make no movie about us beating their behinds. That's Hollywood movies for you, though. A lot of the Hollywood movies that they make about most being victorious are overseas, especially in Southern Europe or in Northwest Africa, you won't see over here. Those movies are rejected. Uh, you take the movie that... Uh, uh, anybody know the Mike, the, the actor Michael Jai White was trying to make called The Moor. He never could get enough funds to fund the movie. I don't know how many of you know about it or heard of it. 
But yes, Michael Jai White tried to make a movie called The Boar. We picked like the movie The Long Ships with actor Sidney Poitier and European actor Richard Whitmore. In the end, they had the Europeans or the Vikings defeating the Moors. So the Moors had to be defeated in the movie. They can't make a movie about us defeating them successfully. No. Putting us on top, put them on bottom in those movies. Might give Asiatic people ideas, you know. And the Hollywood industry, the Hollywood industry, is really big on mind control. Yeah, that played a very, very, very big part in dumbing down our people by making such movies as Superfly, uh, um, The Mac. You know, those of us was around during the seventies when they're making all these so-called black exploitation films and uh, movies like that. You know, some of movies uh, dealing uh, with uh, Tyler Perry movies. Some of Tyler Perry movies are pretty good movies. They deal with uh, different and important uh, social issues. You know, I don't knock that, but uh, they're not going even they're not going to never deal with anything talking about nationality or birthright issues. They're never going to do that which is the number one answer to our people's problems. It's not The answer to our problems is not marching in the streets with signs, Black Lives Matter. Because there's, there's no such lies as black lies. No such people ever lived on the planet. No, that's not the answer. Uh, Riding in the streets, uh, burning down cars, uh, burning down stores, and looting and all that, 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 is, that is not the, no. And for de- decades, our people has been misled into doing those foolish and idiotic acts that's never gotten us nowhere. But any of these movies, not any of these movies, will you ever hear the term nationality or birthright? Most 
movies like Django Unchained. <clears throat> I mean, a lot of people thought that was pretty good because they killed up a lot of Europeans in that movie. <clears throat> but that's still not the answer to our dilemma. Because of this country's long history of chattel slavery and the politics of pigment that resulted, racism is especially hard on persons of predominantly African ancestry, even though the U.S. has historically established a role as a leader in science and higher education. Such politics of pigment have continued to override scientific revelations, historical truths, and common sense. Consequently, American academics or academies possess a very large canon of pseudo-scientific arguments claiming the inherited genetic inferiority of so-called blacks, negroes, and colors. The the voluminous work of uh, uh, anti-black thought I'm I'm sorry, I read this to you already. Uh, Let me read this. Uh, Oh. Sorry. We'll get to another page here. Just just be patient with me. Okay. It says here. The U.S. diplomacy with Morocco and special consideration for Moorish nationals. Moorish nationals, I uh, want to get you to understand what a Moorish national is. A Moorish national is one of us so-called black, African-American, Afro-American, or people of color. That is uh, the Moorish people that has, mis- that has been misclassified as black, Negro, colored, African-American, people of color, okay? Okay, we are all, we are boys, all, you could say, indigenous, aboriginal American people. I'll put it this way, indigenous, aboriginal American, Niji. The word Niji I get from uh, uh, the lecture of Dan Calloway, although I don't agree with a lot of Dan Calloway's, uh, what he says, especially dealing with the boys, uh, national movement because he has yet to uh, uh, do enough research on that. All he dealt with was just the more science temples, which uh, I've been said many, many, many times. They all have been compromised. Those of the more divine national movement know this very well that the more science temple of American Incorporated has been compromised. We know this. That we are the Moorish temple of science of the world. That's where we come at. We come at on the civic and lawful side. Dealing with actual nationality and birthright issues. Okay? I want y'all to get to, uh, for those who do, do not understand the Moorish national movement, I 
want to get that understanding. It says here, Forbes informs us that in 1792, a statute passed by the South Carolina legislature denied Moore's access into the state for a term of years. But this statute can give a false impression of the overall relations of the imperial Moorish powers and the status of those recognized as Moors by the U.S. federal and state authorities. Two years earlier in South Carolina, General of the House of Representatives, Wednesday, January 20th, 1790, that appears the following entry. Okay? A petition was presented to the House of the Sundry Free Moors, subject of the Emperor of Morocco and residents of this state, South Carolina, praying that in the case they should commit any fault interval to be brought to justice, that they are subjects to a prince to alliance with the United States of America, may be tried under the same laws as the citizens of this state would be liable to be tried and not under the Negro. Did you hear me? Did you understand what I just read to you? If you, if you didn't, I'm going to read this over to you again. They're always talking about uh, nationality don't work. That's nationality stuff. The, the paperwork don't work. They're getting ready to cut me off. So I'm going to try to uh, say this in time before they cut me off, okay? It says here, a petition was presented to the House from the sundry free Moors, subjects of the Emperor of Morocco and residents of this state, South Carolina, praying that in case they should commit any fault amenable to be brought to justice, that they, are, that they as subjects to a prince in alliance with the United States of America may be tried under the same laws as the citizens of this state would be liable to be tried under and not under the Negro Act. That means the Negro Act, which, which uh, uh, they still use against our people today, believe it or not. Believe it or not, the Negro Act is still used against the majority of our people today because they don't have a nationality. Okay? It says here, Barry informs us that the House replies favorably. House Representatives Joseph Green, General Pickney, and Edward Rutledge informed the Moors that their petition was duly accepted and granted. We must assume that these boys looked racially Africoid. Otherwise, there would have been no need for them to secure protective legislation. In short, they looked like any other so-called black or mulatto, slave or free. James Hagee cites two cases where men dressed in Moorish habit appeared in Charleston, Carolina in 1786. They were picked up by law officers, and it was later determined that they were of Jewish of the Jewish nation. The men in this case were found to have originally sailed from Algeria to Virginia. The men were evidently found to not have been friendly Moors, but 
whether they were summary arrested on suspicion of being Algerines. The brown-skinned Moors, also known as Turks of Sumter, South Carolina, are known to have lived in that region for more than two centuries. The famed 19th century African-American, or so-called African-American abolitionist Robert Purvis, is a descendant of the Moor Turk community. Historians Michael Johnson and James Roark Purvis, mother was apparently one of the free people of color near Stateburg, known as Turks. But well into the 20th century, this community would continue to struggle to distance itself from any association with the terms Negro and Black. In the 1950s, the Moors of Sumter, of Sumter South Carolina, sought to maintain their historic access to the status of whiteness. The status, now this is a status to whiteness. They, this, they tried to do via their battles with the public school system, efforts by state authorities to segregate more Turk children from white. White children were met with court battles. In 1953, the federal court judge Ashton H. Williams recognized that the Sumter Moors were not Negroes and even and had even spoke of their long legacy as jurors and voters in their South Carolina community, a right hair only by so called whites. In spite of their recognized African and Asiatic origins, the large the larger historical records showed that they had lived primarily as white citizens. Brutenberry states that the Sumter Moors Turks most famed progenitor Joseph Bethenhaley was described as being of Moorish, Turkish, or Arab origin. Bethenhaley was known to have fought in 1780 with General Thomas Sumter's Continental Forces against the British. General Sumter was called the Sword of South Carolina by his Masonic brethren as a result of his level of slave war efforts. Joseph Ben Ali, Joseph Ben Ali, Joseph Ben, Ben meaning the son of Ali. Ben Haley was, uh, was, was his anglicized name. Ben Haley was a soldier and bugler with General Sumter and was one of the tenants of Sumter's plantation's estate. This is what people, when they talk that ignorant mess, they don't care if you call yourself a Moor or not. But here's proof they do care. And this is documented. A lot of these documents are in the Library of Congress. Check them out. For, for, the, for you other idiots that talk, calling yourselves indigenous and don't want to call yourselves Moors, well, check this out. Then it does mean something. Okay, I guess I had that all to say about Hollywood and the Moors. I uh, wish I had a lot more to tell you, a lot more time to tell you. Uh, like I say, I don't mean to insult. I mean to inform our people. As some people may say, educate. But I like using the word informing our people better, okay? Um... I'm getting ready to sound off here. This is all I have for you tonight. And uh, hopefully we'll be talking to you next Wednesday at this time.
same station. And the First World Order blog talk show radio show. I say to you in the Algonquin, Washita, Choctaw language, Bawasamatakunda, which means peace family. May my spirit and your spirit spring forth with the jaguar. Peace. I'm out.